this morning, we will be reading from 2 Samuel. We'll be reading select verses from chapters 11 and 12. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David sent to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. 
David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team here, and it's uh, great to be together and to open up God's Word this morning. We're in the middle of a, a sermon series through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're looking at the story of King David. Now, I said to you in the very first week of this series that this book of the Bible is kind of like a Netflix drama. It has everything. And today we come to one of the most sad and sorry episodes in the story. We come to the episode with David and Bathsheba. Now this is one of the most well-known episodes from the life of David. The other, of course, being David and Goliath. But there we see David at his best. Whereas here we see David at his worst. Now maybe you've heard the song before, Hallelujah. It was in the movie Shrek, maybe that's where you heard it. Maybe you've heard the well-known version by Jeff Buckley. But of course it was originally written by Leonard Cohen. And there's a line in this song that says, You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. Now this is what happens to David today. He is overthrown. He fails and he falls spectacularly. Now, if you've been paying attention to the story so far, the question I bet you're wondering is how? How did David end up here? I mean, I'm sure you've had those times in your life where you've found yourself in a situation, you've looked around and you've thought, how did I end up here? I remember back in 2010, I went on a biblical studies tour through Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. I flew into Cairo a couple of days before the rest of the group because I wanted to to look around the city. I landed in the morning, I managed to make it to my hotel, and I thought, well, I'll go for a little bit of a walk around the city. Now, I literally got three steps out of my hotel before a gentleman approached me and started to ask me a series of questions. Where are you from? Brisbane. Oh, Brisbane, lovely place. I've got family in Brisbane. I now wonder if that was quite true. What are you doing here? And, and, and just asking me all these questions. And eventually he says to me, hey, I've got something that I'd love to show you. Would you come with me? Now, I'm in my early 20s, I'm a little bit naive, and it sounds really bad now that I say it out loud to a crowd of people, but the next thing I know, I'm following this guy through the streets of Cairo. He's taking me down side streets and alleyways, and I have no idea where I'm going. Now, eventually, we arrive at this house, and it has a staircase that's leading down to a door at the bottom. And again, it sounds really bad now that I say it out loud, but next thing I know, I'm following this guy down the staircase. I step into this small room, and I kid you not, from floor to ceiling, all over the walls of this room were bottles of perfume. And the next thing I know, he's trying to sell me perfume, and I'm tripping out, and I remember standing there thinking, How did I end up here? 
in a perfume dungeon in Cairo. Now, eventually I realised he wasn't going to take no for an answer, and so I kind of hightailed it out of there while the door was still open. And then I got completely lost because I had no idea where I was. Now, I wonder if you've had a situation in your life where you've looked around and you've thought, how did I get here? The story that we're looking at today in chapter 11 and chapter 12 in the life of David forces us to ask the question, how did David get here? Now, this is an incredibly important question because I know that you've had times in your life, because I've had times in my life where I've done something, I've said something, I've gone somewhere, and I've thought to myself, how did I get here? Or how did I get here again? And maybe in those moments you've thought to yourself, well, has God had enough of me? Have I gone too far? Have I sinned too greatly, too often? Is God done with me? If you've ever thought that question, then this story is in the Bible for you. This story is in the Bible to warn us about what we're capable of. But it's also in the Bible to help us know what to do when we find ourselves in that situation when we think, how did I end up here? So let's have a look at this important, powerful story together, and I'm just going to look at it in two main scenes. The first scene, if you're taking notes, is this. It's the sin of David. Now, chapter 11 begins, and we're told that the Israelite army is going off to war. We're told, actually, that it's the time for war. It almost sounds like it's the start of the footy season. But it just means that the spring was more suitable for war. It wasn't as cold, it wasn't as wet, and so the army's off to war. But the focus in this story, it's not on the army, it's on who stays behind. Look at what we read at the end of verse 1. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now notice that David's downfall, it doesn't begin with an obvious evil. It simply begins with David neglecting his duty with David not doing what he should have been doing. Now, if you look back on your life, if you look back on those times when you have sinned perhaps most significantly, I think you would find that it began with neglecting important duties, neglecting your relationship with God, neglecting church, neglecting your family, neglecting your spiritual and emotional health, Because what this story is going to very clearly show us is that big sin begins with small steps. Big sin begins with small steps. Now, I'm sure David didn't think much of staying behind in Jerusalem. The army by this stage was big enough, strong enough to take care of themselves. He could just kind of stay back in Jerusalem. And besides, he would be safe there. He was the king. Or so he thought. But what David didn't realize is that the real enemy was not kind of outside the walls of Jerusalem. The real enemy was lurking inside his own heart. And David's complacency leads to his downfall. See, one night David gets up and he decides to go for a walk on the flat rooftop of his palace. Now his palace would have been on the highest ground in Jerusalem and so he would have had a panoramic view of the city. And from that vantage point, he happens to see a woman bathing. 
And we're told in the text that this woman was very beautiful. Now, of course, we all know what David should have done. We all know know what we should do when we see something that we shouldn't see. We all know David should have looked away and got on with something else, but that's not what he does. He sends a, a messenger to find out about her. This is the days before Facebook, so he can't kind of Facebook stalk her, but he's the king. And so he sends a messenger to find out about this woman, and the messenger comes back and tells him very, very clearly, listen to what the messenger says, she is Bathsheba. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, do you know who Uriah the Hittite was? Well, when David was, on a, was a fugitive and when he was on the run from Saul in the wilderness, there was a group of friends that came around him voluntarily. They were known as David's mighty men. They risked their lives for the sake of David. And one of these men was Uriah the Hittite, one of David's close friends and one of his loyal soldiers. So now that David knows this, how do we expect him to respond? Well, verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. David sees and he takes. Now, this is the Garden of Eden all over again, isn't it? Do you remember what happens in Genesis 3? Eve saw that the fruit was pleasing, good for food and pleasing to the eye, desirable for wisdom. And so she took it. David sees Bathsheba, is beautiful, desirable, pleasing, and he takes her. Even though he knew he was disobeying God, even though he knew he was dishonoring his friend, and even though he knew he was dismissing the dignity of this woman, he sees and he takes. And this is the blinding power of sin. It's kind of like when you look into the sun, You know, when you look directly into the sun, what happens to your vision? You have a white blotch in your vision. It's blurred. You don't see clearly. Well, when David saw Bathsheba, the white blotch of lust blurred his vision. He lost sight of God, and he lost sight of who Bathsheba really was, a human being made in the image of God, the wife of his friend Uriah. And he saw her simply as an object to satisfy his lust. This is the blinding power of sin. Now I'm sure if you said to David earlier that day, hey David, later on today you are going to take the wife of your good friend and you are going to force yourself on her. He would have said, are you mad? Get away from me, that is ridiculous. And yet here we are. Why? Because this is the blinding power of sin. Listen to how James puts it in his New Testament letter. He says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now that's pretty powerful imagery, isn't it? To be dragged away by our evil desires. Now let me ask you, What in your life has the power to to blind you and to drag you away? 
what kind of fills your vision with a white blotch so that you lose sight of God and you lose sight of other people? Now, like David, it might be sexual sin. It might be pornography. Now, the stats would suggest that it is for many of us. Porn is more accessible, more available than ever before, and yet it is devastatingly harmful, both to our relationship with God and to our relationship with our spouse, and to the way that we view other people, people made in the image of God. Now, if this is something that is blurring your vision, my point is not to shame you, but to call you to something better. See, porn, like any sin, it promises us comfort, escape, satisfaction, but it always leaves us worse off. It never delivers. And today, God is calling some of us to clear our vision, to confess to God and to confess to a trusted Christian friend who can begin to help us walk in the light where there is hope and healing and freedom. Now, to indulge in porn is not the unforgivable sin. It's a sin that Christ died to pay for. And it's also a sin that he wants to help us walk free of, to clear our vision so that we can see God and see other people as we should. Maybe your vision has been blurred by an inappropriate relationship with someone who's not your spouse. At the moment, it might be flirtatious conversations, maybe just fantasy, but remember, big sin begins with small steps. Maybe you're in a sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse. And today, God is calling you to wake up and to walk away. Maybe it's not sexual temptation for you that that blurs your vision. Maybe it's a grudge. Maybe you refuse to forgive someone and the resentment just clouds all that you see and all that you do. Maybe it's money, so consumed by the desire to get more of it that you're so blurred that you can't give it away. Maybe it's jealousy. Your vision is so filled by what everyone else has, you fail to see what God has given you. Maybe it's just complacency. Maybe it's just floating in your relationship with God and it's blurred your vision. What in your life? What is it that's blinding you to God's goodness and God's promises? What has the potential to drag you away? Now listen, it might only be a seed right now a seed of fantasy, a seed of resentment, a seed of lust. But here's the thing about seeds. They become trees. And it's far easier to crush a seed than it is to cut down a tree. And so what in your life is God calling you to deal with today? To bring into the light? Now the seed of David's sin, pardon the pun, it begins to sprout almost immediately. Verse 5, look what we read. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now the child is obviously David's because Uriah has been off at war. So what is David going to do? Now again, we know what David should do. Own up, confess. But that's not what he does. He does what is now a classic move in politics and if we're honest, a classic move in our lives as well. He launches a cover-up. He recalls Uriah from the battlefield. He's hoping that while Uriah is back in town, he'll sleep with his wife and it will seem like the baby is his. But what he doesn't count on is the the righteousness of Uriah. 
Uriah refuses to go home. His commander and his fellow soldiers are still on the battlefield. And so he says to David, how could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Now there's a a subtle rebuke in here for David, isn't there? But David doesn't give, give up. He actually launches plan B and he gets Uriah drunk, thinking that that will lower his standards. But again, Uriah refuses to go home. And what we see here is that even drunk Uriah is more righteous than sober David. Now, by this point, David has become so desperately deluded, so conscious, has become so seared that he resorts to murder. He sends Uriah back to the battlefront with a special message, a sealed message, and it's actually Uriah's death warrant. David tells Joab, the general of the army, to put Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest and then to withdraw from him so that he is killed. And that's what happens. Uriah is killed on the the battlefield, but technically, in reality, he is murdered by David. Now, do you see the escalation of David's sin? What began as a lustful glance from the rooftop It has become a murderous plot to kill a loyal friend. And listen, this is what sin does. It snowballs beyond our control. Our sin can take us down all kinds of paths that we never dreamed we'd go down. I mean, no one wakes up one day and decides to have an affair. That is a pathway paved with all kinds of small decisions. No one wakes up one day and decides to steal from their company to cheat on their taxes, to become enslaved to an addiction. And yet, we end up there because if we neglect important things, if we indulge fantasies, if we fail to flee temptation, that might be just where we end up. This is why the Bible says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I mean, please don't ever think, well, well, I would never do what David did. Adultery, murder, I could never do that. Please don't think you're better than David. This was a man after God's own heart, God's chosen king. He authored many psalms, and yet he fell catastrophically. David is a warning to us to be careful that we do not fall. You know, we sometimes sing the hymn in church, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I'm sure you know that hymn, the the fourth verse, it has those lines. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It expresses the reality that, that we are prone to drift from God. Now, the author of this hymn was a man named Robert Robinson. And he wrote it when he was about 22 years old. But many, many years later in life, he was traveling in a carriage, and on this carriage, there was a woman who was talking about all the hymns that she'd been blessed by. And she was especially going on about Come Thou Fount, going on and on about this hymn. And Robinson became agitated, and he burst out, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings I had then. I mean, Robinson himself had wandered. David is a warning to us. This story is a warning to us to think, I would never do that. This story is also a warning to us to think that we can get away with hiding our sin, with with covering it up. 
Now initially, David thinks he's gotten away with it. Look at the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 11. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now to the people of Jerusalem, it might have even looked like David was doing a noble thing, taking in this widow, even giving her a son. And though he might have fooled the people of Jerusalem, there was one person in the universe that he had not fooled. And this person has been strangely quiet until now. Verse 27, we finally hear God's verdict on this whole situation. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And this leads us to the second scene in the story, the grace of God. Now as chapter 12 begins, God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David. And this is not God being harsh to David, this is God being incredibly gracious to David. He will not allow David to get comfortable in his sin, to think that he's gotten away with it. Now, if you feel like God is speaking to you about some area of your life today, if you feel like God is confronting you about an area of your life, that is God being gracious to you. God will not allow you to settle down in your sin. He loves you too much. And so Nathan comes to David and he comes with a very surprising message. He tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man has one little lamb, the rich man has many, many cattle, but the rich man steals the poor lamb, the little lamb from the poor man, takes it, kills it, and slaughters it. And when David hears this story, he is outraged. Listen to what he says. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now, that's quite a response, isn't it? Especially for a man who has taken another man's wife slept with her, impregnated her, and then killed her husband to cover it up. I mean, he's outraged about the loss of a little man, a little lamb? It seems like David is a kind of classic religious hypocrite. Gets outraged at what everyone else is doing, but then he's doing things that are far worse. Now, it's true that religious people can be hypocrites, but isn't this what we all do? Don't we all live in this way? Don't we all condemn small things in the lives of other people, but then condone big things in our own lives? Uh, Let me prove it to you. How do you react when someone cuts you off in traffic? Now, if you're anything like me, you feel irrationally offended. How could that person be such an idiot? How can they be so selfish? Didn't they see I was driving there? But then you get home and you're short with your kids, You're ungrateful towards your wife, but it's not because you're selfish. You've just had a hard day. You're just tired. I mean, isn't this what we all do? This is why Jesus says to us in Matthew 7, if we're going to point out the speck in someone else's eye, we should take a look in the mirror for a log. Because beneath the outrage of David is the guilt of David. Be wary of what you get outraged about. And David's guilt and his sin is exposed with one word from Nathan. David says, this man should die. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. Now what a moment. 
Can you imagine how David was feeling? More importantly, I guess, we need to ask, well, how will David respond? How will he react? Now, he could continue to lie. He could deny it. I don't know what you're talking about, Nathan. He could rationalize it. Nathan, you don't know what it's like to be king. You don't know the pressure that I'm under. Besides, my desires are so strong, and God made me that way. He could shift the blame. Well, Nathan, Uriah was, Bathsheba was bathing out in the open. What was I supposed to do? And Uriah, he just wouldn't do what I wanted him to do. If he just went home, none of this would have happened. It's their fault. I wonder if those responses sound familiar to you. What sets David apart is what happens next. What makes David a man after God's own heart is how he responds. Because he doesn't deny, he doesn't rationalize, he doesn't shift the blame. He confesses his sin. In the story, it's a simple confession. He says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. But in Psalm 51, we're actually given the the full version of David's confession, David's repentance. And what we see there, he does three very important things when confronted and convicted by his sin. Three things that you and I need to do as well. The first thing David does is he owns up. Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David stops hiding, stops pretending, he stops blaming, he owns up. But then he looks up. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He turns to God and he asks for mercy and for forgiveness. And then finally he gets up. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He receives God's forgiveness and he is restored to God's service. When David is confronted with his sin, he owns up, he looks up, and he gets up. And that's what you and I must do as well. And Nathan says to David, the Lord has taken away your sin, you are not going to die. See, what ultimately matters when we are confronted and convicted about our sin, it's not the fact that we sin, it's how we respond. And I came across a stunning passage by C.S. Lewis this week. It's in a letter that he wrote to a young lady about facing temptation. Listen to what he says. He says, no amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready, the towels put out, and the clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give it up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present to us. It is the very sign of his presence. What do you do when you notice the dirt? Do you run away and try to clean yourself up? Or do you run to God? Do you own up, look up, and then get up? 
And David is forgiven by God, he's restored to God's service, but that doesn't mean there are no consequences. Nathan says to David in verse 10, the sword, David, will never depart from your house. In other words, David, you used the sword for selfish purposes to kill Uriah. Well, the sword will now be used against you and your line and your family. And we'll see that vividly in weeks to come. Nathan also says to David that the son that will be born to Bathsheba will die. Uriah lost a son. Uriah's father lost a son. And now David will lose a son. Now, this is awful and it's devastating. And if we're honest, it seems unfair. Why should David's son die in his place? Well, in the story, you'll notice that David is confident that his son will live on in eternity, that he will go to see him one day. But this scene is also pointing us forward to the cross. See, David deserved to die, but his son died in his place. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, the innocent son of God, he died in the place of the guilty, You and me. The penalty of our sin is death. And yet Jesus Christ died the death that you and I deserve to die. He died so that we could live. He died so that when we own up and look up, no matter where we find ourselves in life, we can also get up. Because God gives his forgiveness and grace to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, there are going to be lots of times in life when you look around and you will think, how did I get here? How did I get here again? You might be there right now. And God's invitation to you today and every day is you don't have to stay there. Because through Christ, he has made a way for you to own up, look up, and get up. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to respond by hearing the words of the hymn, He was pierced for our transgressions. And I'm going to invite you just to sit. Just to sit and let these words and the Spirit of God minister to you. And maybe there's something that you need to own up to. You need to confess that to God. And as you do that, I want to invite you to look up to God to ask for his mercy, to ask for his forgiveness. And then in a moment, I will come back and we will pray together and then get up to sing praise to our Heavenly Father. So you just let these words and God's Spirit minister to you now.
Heavenly Father, you have laid our sins, our iniquities, on your innocent Son, the Lord Jesus. He died so that we could live. Lord, some of us have never turned to him. Some of us have never placed our faith and our trust in him, repented of our sin. And Lord, this morning, we want to receive the cleansing that only you can give. I want to say, Lord, I am the man. I am the woman. And thank you that you have sent a saviour for me. Lord, others of us, we ask and pray that you, by your spirit, would clear our vision. Help us to see you clearly. Help us to see others clearly so that we can love you and love others as you've called us to. And we ask that you might forgive us where we've fallen and that you might restore us to your service, that you might create a steadfast spirit within us so that we can be the people in the church that you are calling us to be. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand? And hear these words from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Amen.